This is a very uh, uh, top end overview of uh, some of the work that we've been doing here in the different products. So um, the project uh, started uh, just last year in 2020. Um, because of the multiple locations that we have, we've been able to collect uh, five site years of CBD uh, data, six site years of grain data. And this year uh, was the first time actually that we had a dedicated fiber trial. Um, in 2019 and 2020, we um, just collected fiber data from primarily grain cultivars. Um, but uh, Phil was able to connect us with some folks uh, in the Czech Republic called Hemp Point. iHemp Michigan is a member-based organization backing hemp farmers, seed cultivators, processors, manufacturers, and hemp businesses statewide. Our members are engaged in defining the path to success of industrial hemp from seed to sale and beyond. We are committed to empowering hemp farmers, fueling industry leaders, and educating consumers to ensure hemp flourishes in the Midwest. Our focus is influencing responsible and fair regulation, providing grower education, and enabling full access to the evolving marketplace. IHEMP Michigan advocates for wellness in people and the planet through hemp, and it begins with the farmer. Now, on to our show. But we have a great, uh, great show today. We knew that everybody, one of the things we wanted to make sure we covered in January at the Expo, of course, was going to be the varieties and the trials that have happened on those so everybody can figure out, you know, what varieties they want to plant, and what varieties will uh, produce what they're trying to do, either whether it be flour or whether it be fiber or grain. And uh, this last year, um, through a collaborative effort um, with MSU Extension and Illinois Extension and a couple of labs and a bunch of growers uh, that got a reduction on their price for that. Uh, we were able to uh, to gather a lot more information. And then also, uh, there was also some trials that they did. So that's why we have Jamesy Decoranis with uh, from MSU Extension and Phil Abetti uh, from the Illinois Extension. Um, pleasure meeting both you guys before in the past. And uh, we appreciate all the effort you guys are putting into this. And what you're able to share with us, because this is the this is the building block that we need to know. We need to know what varieties are going to do here, what varieties are going to go hot, um, you know, what varieties are going to produce, whether it be flour, whether it be grain or fiber, you know, what's going to do the best in, in the different areas that we have around here. So, guys, I really appreciate you having time tonight to come on and be able to talk with us. And I'm not sure if you guys did rock paper scissors on who's going first, but we'll let you guys figure out how you're going. So. Thanks for being on tonight, guys. Thank you, Blaine. I think uh, I'll take the mic first here. Um, so really appreciate the opportunity to join the iHemp Hour again. Um, as Blaine said, I'm James D. Decker with Michigan State University, and, and we've been involved with hemp research since 2019 at Michigan State, um, and we're continuing those trials. I have a few slides to share, Blaine, if that's okay. Sure, if, um, sure. I'll Absolutely. share my screen. Yep. Okay. Uh, you'll also have to tell us about your background there because I'm pretty mesmerized by all that back there. So. Oh, <laughs> um, so my background is actually a commercial uh, hemp grain field from a farmer in the Upper Peninsula or a couple, I should say, uh, um, that were growing. And that was a 2020 photo. They had a really great field, uh, two different varieties on other, either side of the aisle there. Um, and I think they're all... Um, I, they're both IHG uh, varieties, I believe. So, Blaine, I think you think you know who I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. I I won't say their name because I don't I don't have permission. I don't think, but. 
Yeah, we're still uh, waiting for them to come out with their uh, with their uh, energy bar. Yes, yeah, they're doing some great things on the processing side in terms of food utilization, and it's exciting to to see um, what's going on there. So um, I'll start this evening um, with this title slide, and this is really just to point out the collaboration that we have among some of the uh, land-grant institutions in the Midwest here, and also one uh, nonprofit organization, Michael Fields Agricultural Institute. Um, this has been a great uh, team of researchers, uh, extension folks, uh, collaborating to really help move the envelope uh, uh, raise the bar in terms of hemp research and, uh, and make sure that we're getting the information out to growers as quickly as we can to, to try to improve decision making and opportunities in the industry there. Um, so uh, it's been a, a great team, excited, exciting to continue working with them. And uh, Phil, as you've seen, is, is here tonight to share some of his experience with uh, part of this project as well. And I'll also give uh, Phil the credit of really bringing us together. Um, he, he started the database project that was kind of the impetus for all of us to, to uh, be working together. So it's been a great, great partnership. So um, in Michigan here, we have a sort of embedded project within the Midwest collaboration, and that is what we call the Hemp Tribal Research Initiative for Michigan. Um, it's a, uh, project that's funded by USDA NIFA Tribal Colleges Research Grant. And so um, our partners are uh, tribal colleges and uh, tribal communities that are interested in agriculture and cannabis in particular. And we're working with them to uh, build research capacity for agriculture at their institutions. And of course, to answer the questions that we all have about hemp and how that might fit into uh, economies and communities, specifically tribal communities in terms of uh, economic development and just creating uh, business opportunities for these folks. Um, so our partners uh, on this project are uh, Bay Mills Community College and Waishiki Bay Farm. You can see them there in the UP um, on the map there. Little Traverse Bay Bands of Odawa Indians and Ziba Mijuang Farm uh, in the Northern Lower Peninsula. And then today, actually, I am uh, sitting in Mount Pleasant at Saginaw Chippewa Tribal College. We spent the day today uh, bucking CBD hemp um, from our trial and uh, got that done just before the talk today. So uh, they've been great partners as well. And then I'm located in the central UP where you can see the Sparty helmet there in Chatham. We are the Upper Peninsula Research and Extension Center. Um, and so a lot of our work has been focused in Northern Michigan and the UP in particular. Um, this uh, hemp trim project has been focused primarily on variety testing for grain, fiber, and CBD. We also are doing a little bit of weed management work um, and other pest monitoring, and then really trying to connect with uh, folks in these communities to just understand what their needs and interests are and questions are related to hemp. Um, this is a very uh, uh, top end overview of uh, some of the work that we've been doing here in the different products. So um, the project uh, started uh, just last year in 2020 um, because of the multiple locations that we have, we've been able to collect uh, five site years of CBD uh, data, six site years of grain data. And this year uh, was the first time actually that we had a dedicated fiber trial. Um, in 2019 and 2020, we um, just collected fiber data from primarily grain 
cultivars. Um, but uh, Phil was able to connect us with some folks uh, in the Czech Republic called Hemp Point, and they're acting as a distributor um, for European hemp uh, seed companies. And they were able to connect us with some uh, dedicated fiber genetics this year. And it was really neat to see some of the differences there in terms of how that material performed um, relative to the grain stuff, which in our trials has mostly been sourced from Canada, a little bit from the US, but primarily Canada. Um, I won't spend a lot of time going through the, the sort of general results here, but you can see in 2020, we were 69% uh, THC compliant, and you can see the range there of uh, three and a quarter to 12.69% CBD in those compliant cultivars. And uh, Phil's going to talk about the CBD work um, uh, in the context of the hemp database. So um, that's all about, I'll say, for uh, CBD today. On the grain side, uh, we've had an opportunity to look at 25 different cultivars over the last couple of years, and our yields have uh, varied widely uh, based on location, uh, based on pest management uh, from as low as 125 pounds per acre up to 1,400 pounds of uh, grain per acre. We've also uh, identified a lot of emerging pests in Michigan through these trials, things like cannabis aphid, European corn borer, corn earworm, white mold, songbird damage in the grain, uh, depredation of the grain. And so it's a great opportunity for us to document those things and understand what effect they have on the crop in terms of uh, performance, yield and quality and what that might mean for growers as far as which pests are really gonna need to be managed carefully and which ones might be more incidental or, or less problematic. Um, you can see in the bottom here uh, a couple of pictures, and that's just to give you a sense of kind of the differences between how uh, we're testing CBD versus grain and fiber, and it really mirrors the differences that you see in terms of production systems out there commercially. Uh, so transplants, plastic mulch, uh, wide spacing, etc. Uh, for CBD and direct seeded, uh, much higher populations and so forth on the grain and fiber side. The main thing that I want to talk about tonight is uh, some of the results from our grain and fiber trials that were conducted in 2021. And um, this is the first that this data has been shared. So um, iHemp is uh, one of our, our best partners and we're happy to, to be able to uh, work with you guys to get this information out. Um, and it's hot off the presses, so um, so happy to be sharing it today. Um, so just a little bit of background on how we conducted these grain and fiber trials uh, this last year. Um, we had two locations for grain and fiber, um, the Hyde, Michigan location, which is uh, the central UP, and then Brimley in the eastern UP. Um, these are randomized complete block designs with four replications. So we have four plots of each variety randomized out there in the design. Um, we managed these two sites quite differently this year, um, just to kind of get us a feel of how the uh, crop would respond to these different management practices. And you can kind of think of them as conventional and organic. Um, the hide location was managed conventionally as far as uh, synthetic fertilizer, herbicide, et cetera. And the uh, Brimley location was managed uh, organically. So we used feather meal for fertility and, and uh, hand weeding instead of herbicide. Um, one of the things I'll talk about in the results is the impact of chemical weed control, the herbicides that we used. And we saw pretty uh, variable um, response to the herbicide from the, the different varieties that we had out there. So some, um, you know, looked like 
a Roundup Ready soybean plant looks like when you spray Roundup on it. You know, nothing nothing happened to the crop. Other varieties actually were injured quite significantly from the herbicide that we used. And I think as we expand grain and fiber production um, in Michigan and in the Midwest, um, understanding opportunities for chemical weed control, which herbicides might be effective, and getting those, of course, then labeled um, so that growers have the option of, of chemical weed control is going to be pretty important. Not for everybody and not always necessary, but um, but is uh, important when it's needed. Um, let's see. Um, one major difference I want to point out in the practices here is that uh, the grain we're planting at 25 plants per square foot, the fiber we're planting at twice as many, 50 plants per square foot. And I want you to uh, keep those numbers in mind. That's the number of, you know, pure live seed that we put out there. Um, but that's not, that's not the uh, stand that we end up achieving in the field. And, you know, stand establishment, turning those seeds into viable plants has been one of the, one of the challenges that we've really had based on seed quality, uh, seed bed preparation and other things. Um, so we've, we've planted pretty high rates because we don't get nearly that many plants and we plant a lot more for fiber versus grain. Um, let's see, the fiber, if you're not aware with fiber, produ uh, fiber production systems, um, they're harvested much earlier, uh, kind of uh, mid flower or early flower. So the fiber was harvested on August 16th this year. Grain harvest started shortly thereafter with some of our very early varieties, uh, August 23rd, and continued all the way through October 28th, just based on maturity of those different varieties. So I've got some tables here and uh, don't worry about, you know, kind of taking in every last uh, cell in these tables. I'll, I'll talk through them, um, but uh, also just realize that this information is going to be published and it will be available to everybody real shortly here. So um, you can find it on our UPREC website and you can, you know, uh, read it at home and take your time with it and really digest it or as you're looking at, you know, seed to buy or whatever, whatever uh, you need, this information will be available. Um, so one of the things that we uh, want to understand, well, let me back up. First, let's look at the variety list. So you can see the varieties that we had here. Um, this is the grain uh, set of varieties here. Um, some of these may be familiar. Um, some of these may be less familiar. We also have some that have been anonymized here um, because some of the companies that we work with uh, want to make sure that uh, they have a chance to look at the data um, before it is published uh, with their name on it. So um, we got a couple of ones that are anonymized, but those will hopefully be uh, labeled uh, once uh, we get the, uh, the go ahead from those folks. Yeah, that Anon B looks pretty good there. That's the clear winner, right? Yeah, there's some uh, some some good ones there. Now, um, so the first uh, comment we're looking at is seeds per pound. So this is a, actually a measurement of seed size. And the reason I include that here is that so we've seen a lot of variation in seed size from very small to quite large. And also what we've seen is that larger seeds are uh, doing a lot better in terms of stand establishment when we're direct seeding the grain and the fiber into the field. So looking for large seeded varieties certainly has been an advantage for us. Now, the seed also has to be you know vigorous and have good germ and so forth, but large seed has been important. If you also think about, you know, the seed is what we're yielding, right? So a variety that has a larger seed, you're going to have um, potentially more, uh, 
you know, uh, protein, oil, whatever that might be in that larger seed. So that's something to think about as well. Um, these were all planted on the same date. And then here you can see the stands that we achieved. Um, so some were actually fairly thin this year. Uh, remember we planted 25 plants per square foot. So in general, we're getting about a half uh, stand or sometimes less than half a stand, um, uh, stand establishment from what we planted. So that's a pretty important figure. Um, and you know, some of it is certainly seedbed prep and the fact that we're drilling versus precision planting, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, but it's been a challenge for us to get good stands uh, with grain and fiber hemp. Well, what does that mean? Explain to me. Let's talk at the, right, the one of the very top. Stand yes. one foot square, eight. Yep. So you had eight plants per square foot then? Yes, exactly. Yep. So uh, let me give you a sense of how we how we do that. So we drill a plot, the plots are four foot by 16 foot. So it's a small area. And then we go out there with a little square of, you know, rebar or PVC or whatever it is. We uh, put that down in the plot uh, two or three times and we count the number of plants and then we uh, report an average of those. Um, some of our, our stands uh, drilling uh, with our plot drill also can be uh, somewhat uneven. That's why we have to take more than one uh, in a plot there. So, yep, that's what that's what we're, we're saying there. Now, um, when we see the yields, um, you may think, well, actually, those stand numbers weren't so bad. Um, I think 25 uh, plants per square foot, if all the seeds we put in turned into plants, actually would probably be a little bit too thick for good grain yields. Um, so I think I'd like to see more like 10 to 15, uh, ideally. But even with some of these thinner stands, we had some pretty good yields this year. Um, so the next column is herbicide injury. and uh, so remember, we used Assure and, uh, uh, oh, sorry, um, not BroClean. I'm actually going to go back because I don't want to miss, miss say this. Oh, it was BroClean. There you go. Um, so BroClean and Assure. So Assure is a grass herbicide. BroClean is a broadleaf herbicide. We've used Assure in the past with no injury. So uh, it's, it's our belief that all the injury that we experienced came from the broadleaf herbicide, the BroClean. Um, and we chose BroClean because um, our weed scientists at MSU had done some screening of uh, different herbicides. She used, I don't know, five to 10, I think, different products that she tested. And uh, the BroClean was one that actually uh, in her trial looked really good. The, uh, the uh, injury was quite low uh, when she did that test. So we felt confident we would uh, use that same herbicide and, and should be in good shape. The thing is, uh, she used Grandi in her trial. And if you look at Grandi here, what can you see? Um, that that uh, Grandi only was 0.75 on injury. Um, and of course, when you look across uh, that column there, we had some varieties by Labreski that were 3.75 out of five on herbicide injury. So really, really bad. And the herbicide injury, what we saw was less uh, actually death of plants, but severe stunting. So you kind of ended up with two uh, uh, heights of plants, uh, of plants that were injured versus not injured. Um, and that, uh, that can be a challenge just in terms of evenness for harvest, uh, maturity, uh, and so forth. So some, some real issues there. And I think it's pretty important information as we start to think about chemical weed control. We do look at flower dates, um, although in a fiber, uh, oh, sorry, this is a grain. So the, the, the flower dates are going to be indication of, uh, 
relative maturity um, and uh, uh, harvest timing as well. So that's uh, some useful information. And then heights. Um, we see a wide range of heights in the grain material. Some of the grain specific uh, cultivars are quite short. Uh, some of the dual purpose material uh, can be as tall as a fiber crop. Um, so certainly that's gonna be important in terms of, are you gonna have fiber yield if you're looking for it? Are you gonna be dealing with a bunch of fiber uh, that you don't want if that's not your goal, if you're simply focused on grain production? Then this is sort of the yield or uh, outcomes uh, table, if you will, here. So you can see the uh, harvest dates um, based on maturity. Um, we had a lot of white mold, um, uh, sclerotinia, in our uh, grain hemp this year. And it's something that we haven't seen much uh, in previous years. It's very uh, based highly variable based on field history, uh, based on uh, timing and weather conditions um, for spore release. And uh, obviously also we have some differences in variety susceptibility to this particular fungal disease. Look at Helicia there um, versus uh, some of the other varieties that were really devastated by white mold. So mm -hmm. pretty, uh, pretty interesting there. Um, what we saw in the white mold with white mold was a premature plant death. And so you ended up with these uh, flowers that had a bunch of immature seed in them. Um, and so certainly, you know, if you're looking to produce grain, um, that's going to be a real issue. Uh, and then we have our grain yield. So we averaged 990 pounds per acre this year. So really nice uh, grain yields um, at, at the hide location. And uh, you can see some differences there in terms of uh, how they yielded, but overall uh, a lot of, of really strong performers uh, this year in terms of grain. One so real- Is this, is this a cleaned? This this is clean grain. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up, Blaine. That's a really good question. So you know, as you know, if you have experience with grain hemp, um, you have uh, variable seed maturity, right? Because we're talking about an indeterminate plant, and so. Um, you have some mature seed, you have some green seed. Um, and when you measure that yield, whether it's right off the combine, which would have uh, immature seed, mature seed, and to be honest, quite a bit of floral material as well, just because of, of how that goes at, at, at combining time. If you're talking that yield metric versus clean grain yield metric, it can be quite a difference there. So uh, mm -hmm. thanks for bringing that up, Lance. That's a really good point. And going back to the mold for a minute. Um, mm -hmm. So, these plots that you put them in, is this the third year of using that same area, that same plot, mm. or are they different plots? Is this different? Yeah, great question. So um, we're in in general in the same area, but we rotate within this fairly small field that we've got at the Forestry Innovation Center there in Hyde. Um, so the other thing is that the crop that we're rotating with is soybeans, and soybeans are a uh, very susceptible to white mold. Um, they're a host for the same exact disease. So um, that is, is definitely a factor. Um, also, you know, we're rotating this small area. We're talking about a fungal disease that's spread by spores um, and they can move a, a little bit of a distance too. And it really doesn't take that many um, uh, spores or I should say that many uh, mushrooms uh, that come up releasing those spores to infect the crop. Um, also, another really wild observation about the white mold this year. Um, this year, we had terrible white mold in the grain hemp. We had uh, almost no white mold in our soybeans. And that's 
something that really uh, doesn't happen very often. Usually soybeans are quite susceptible, um, but it gives you a sense of how important timing is um, because the primary route of infection for white mold in these crops is through flowers or if there's an injury to the plant, they really need a kind of route of entry to infect the plant. Um, and uh, it really probably was a matter of timing in terms of when those spores were released and when the, pl the plants were susceptible that we saw it in the hemp and not the soybeans this year. I'll have a question a little bit later, but I don't want to take too much of your time on that. Sure. Well, real quick, James, is white mold the same as powdery mildew? Mm. It is not. Great question. Those are often confused. Um, powdery mildew would be a, a disease that infects the leaf tissue primarily. Yeah. We did see some powdery mildew this year um, in some of our CBD cultivars, um, uh, but white mold is quite a different thing. Okay. Um, white mold, uh, again, uh, is spread by these spores. It uh, infects uh, through the flowers often. And then uh, in the plant are produced these resting bodies. They're called sclerotia. They look like uh, little uh, rat turds, to be honest. They're these little long black things. Those are deposited on the soil um, when the uh, plant dies or at harvest time or if there's tillage. Um, and then they can last in the soil for quite some time. Um, when uh, through tillage or just naturally when they're in the top two inches of the soil is when they germinate best and they germinate uh, based upon weather conditions, heat, moisture, humidity, uh, and they produce a little mushroom uh, called, called the apothecia. And that little mushroom uh, grows out of the soil surface. It's a real tiny little thing and it releases a lot of spores um, uh, when the weather conditions are right to infect the plant. Excellent. Thank you for that. Well, I guess I will bring it up since we've talked yeah. about this. So I know that a lot of outdoor grows this year um, uh, for um, hemp, industrial hemp and also for uh, recreational me and medical uh, had a big mold problem. Mm -hmm. So it, I, now that you mentioned, is there a correlation, do you think, between that, the like, timing of the right humidity, temperature, moisture kind of thing? It was, it was a funny year. I'll tell you what, I, I have not seen... Uh, almost any white mold in our hemp in the previous years. And this year it was all over the place. So I do think uh, it seemed like the weather conditions were right. Um, or, you know, maybe we had more susceptible varieties, but we've grown a lot of these varieties in the past. So um, it was, it was astounding actually how much white mold we had uh, at various locations um, in our hemp this year. We also had white mold in our CBD. Um, so, you know, there when the flower is the, is the product you're after, that's a serious issue. Um, we also have um, botrytis, you know, um, but, but we had less botrytis than we had white mold this year. And we also had powdery mildew, but not nearly like the white mold. So it was, it was devastating uh, really in many of our varieties this year. Um, you see the CBD and THC there are TBD. Um, so we uh, prioritized analysis for our uh, CBD cultivars uh, that, that Phil's going to be touching on. And, uh, and so we don't have that data in here yet, but that is, is coming soon. Also, if you know anything about grain and fiber in general, they tend to be uh, lower uh, in both of those metrics and, and generally compliant, but not always. Did any of the, now we know from earlier conversations with the state that some um, uh, fiber varieties went hot. We don't have all the information yet. Do you know if any of these also went hot on your district? Um, I don't know on the grain yet, but uh, it's funny you mentioned that. Uh, I'm, I'm going to touch on the fiber real quickly next, and, but I'll just jump forward to show you that we did have one fiber variety that went hot. 
So, yes, um, it was interesting, you know, bringing in some of the new fiber material from Europe this year that we don't have as much experience with. Um, we did have one, one variety go over. The other scenario where we've seen uh, hot material on the grain and fiber side is some of the folks that are trying to derive multiple products from some of these genetics where you're, you're looking to maybe harvest grain and biomass for CBD. And in those cases, we also have seen uh, some instances of, of varieties going over the threshold. Um, so, uh, I don't, I don't want to step too much more on Phil's toes, but this is our fiber, uh, results here. So we only had five fiber varieties at our location. There are a few more that came from our, our friends at hemp point, uh, that we sent to the other locations. Um, but same information, uh, seeds per pound there in terms of seed size, uh, our stand establishment. Now, remember we planted twice as many. So here we put 50 seeds in the ground and we averaged 20.65 uh, plants. So a little less than uh, half, uh, a stand there. Um, the herbicide injury, this was quite interesting. The fiber material from Europe had a lot higher on average herbicide injury than the grain material from Canada. I can only imagine that's because uh, folks are using herbicide for grain production in Canada and, and the materials being screened for herbicide tolerance. Um, so if you're growing for fiber, um, well, uh, there's no herb labeled herbicides, but in the future, if there are, be aware that your fiber genetics may be more uh, susceptible to herbicide, broadleaf herbicides uh, of certain types than, than uh, some of your grain material. Uh, in general, a little bit earlier flowering uh, here um, and taller heights. Um, and then we also look at the percent male there because in a fiber system, of course, uh, we're interested in capturing uh, all that, uh, the males and females, and depending on harvest timing, um, that can be affected by the male to female ratio. Um, and in general, we've seen higher fiber yields from the Manetius uh, varieties that we don't have any of that senescence happening of the males. So uh, when you went to harvest this fiber varieties, you still had male plants in the field then? Yes, yes, we did. Yep. Um, we, we allowed all the varieties to flower. So some were well into flowering and some were just into flowering. Um, but in general, we had retained our males. Yep. Which would, would really be the goal, I would think, um, for the, for the fiber system. Um, then here's our, our yield. So, uh, unredded, unredded dry matter yields of, uh, 7750, uh, pounds per acre and redded dry matter yields of, uh, 5569. The reason we did that this year is just because I'm curious about the redding process and how much, uh, uh, dry matter loss is occurring in the redding process. And you can see that it's some. Um, so yeah. that's uh, pretty important to, to know about. We look at stem diameter as an indication of fiber quality um, because uh, the best to herd ratio is going to be affected by that. And then here we do have the uh, CBD and THC numbers um, on these particular fiber, fiber varieties. So in general, compliant, but close to the threshold in, in some cases and one that went over. Oh, a couple quick questions oh. here, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I hate to, but uh, how'd you harvest? Um, so here uh, we harvested by actually sickle bar mowing the entire plot and weighing that whole plot um, green. Uh, and then we take uh, subsamples that we uh, ret and uh, oven dry to get our, our yields that way. So this wasn't field retted? 
Um, well, the, it is field reading in the sense that what we do is we take our, our subsamples, we uh, bundle those, um, and then we have left them out for, for reading outside. Okay. Um, we did ret on turf this year, uh, just because it's easy for us to put them out on the lawn and allow that to, to occur. Um, but we get pretty good reading even in, in a bundled, uh, a small bundle uh, sample there. I think I'll leave it uh, here to allow Phil to share what he's got. So thanks everybody. Uh, maybe at the end we can take questions if there's time. Yeah, that's very good. I yeah, appreciate that, James. Thank you very much. And I think for the sake of time, um, we did have a uh, the results of the grain fiber trial in a video format. I will provide the link and have that be available. But just for the sake of time, we might move forward on that um, just to get going. But um, all right, everybody, my name is Philip Alberti. I'm a commercial ag educator with the University of Illinois Extension, and I'm going to go ahead and share my screen. All right, can you see everything? Everything looking okay? Yes, sir. All right, great. <clears throat> All right, so everybody, uh, I'm gonna talk today about the Midwestern Hemp Database and some other university research updates that are currently um, going on in the region here. Let me get that out of the way. Um, so again, Philip Alberti, Commercial Ag Educator with University of Illinois. You can find my contact information available here or it will be available on the last slide that I have. Uh, please reach out anytime. If you have questions about this, you're looking for resources or about anything I'm talking about today, please do not hesitate uh, to reach out. Uh, so for some of you, you may be aware of what the, the Midwestern Hemp Database is. Uh, James briefly talked about this. It's a, it's a very large scale research collaborate, collaborative effort between several land grant institutions, private labs, and importantly, our grower cooperators across the Midwest. Um, just generally what we did is we were uh, able to provide discounted cannabinoid sampling and testing for our growers throughout the season in exchange for simple data sharing. Um, and what we do is we put all this information into a repository online that is publicly available that any grower, any processor, anybody can use uh, to hopefully make some informed decisions about variety selection moving forward. Uh, so importantly, we have several sources of data going into the database. We have our grower gener our general grower submissions. Um, anybody can contribute to that. Uh, we have our university research station trials, which uh, James contributes to, which I myself contribute to. And then the cultivar check program, which is a new project this year, which I'm going to share the results of for the first time uh, as well today, James. So I get the, I get the feeling it's exciting. Um, and then just I wanted to uh, briefly touch over uh, some other research that's being done by other universities uh, because they're doing great work and it needs to be shared. Um, so for those of you who are not aware, uh, this database here is available online at go.illinois.edu slash hemp database. And what it allows you to do is pick a source of a genetic, um, a particular cultivar perhaps, um, or cannabinoid of interest. And so for example, let's just say we look up a highly, po a very popular variety Oregon CBD, we select a few of their varieties of which we have information on. Um, and then that data is presented here as both individual data points. So you could see here, for example, this particular sample, it's CBD, THC, CBG, the ratio of those cannabinoids, but also it gives us summary statistics on how those varieties have performed across two years um, in many locations. And so, uh, for example, here you can see for Suver Haze over two years, we have 53 samples which were submitted for that particular variety and the data that corresponds to that variety. So it's, it's a great way for you to look up sources of genetics, uh, varieties themselves, cultivars themselves, 
Um, and also note that these little blue dots here that populate the screen can be clicked on and it's going to show more information about that particular sample. So some of the information I'm going to talk about is referencing this database as a whole and how we pull in this information. Uh, but we've had over 180 grower cooperators over the last two years, excuse me. And so we're really excited about the data that we're about to share. Um, so, of course, over two years, um, and I will note that this is heavily, more heavily focused on Illinois and Wisconsin than, say, perhaps Michigan, but we've really been able to demonstrate what a typical production season looks like in the Midwest. And granted, you may shift things a little bit, uh, you know, earlier or later, depending on where you are uh, in the Midwest, but for the most part, what we're seeing um, is a, an increase um, in, in peak transplanting time or into the field in, in mid, uh, mid to late June. Um, and then we see this kind of peak with flowering practices where varieties begin to flower in mid to late August, uh, in some cases early September, and our harvest period really ramping up in the first and second weeks of October. This is just gives you a general idea of the amount of information we've been able to collect over the last few years and how it, it can be used uh, to help guide production practices. Just a few things uh, that we've gathered over the last few years is that growers are primarily using seed or seed transplants um, with some clones being used. Uh, and a lot of that's being done via uh, transplanting into the field, given that this is a high value crop. Um, planting into the field is typically around mid-June, but that's going to depend on a few factors that we're going to discuss in a second here. Um, and, and then um, uh, irrigation practices are highly variable, but for the most part, growers were not using irrigation on uh, across the larger data set. But what I wanted to point out here is that we finally kind of have some concrete data illustrating photo period and its impact on potential yields. This is some data from North Carolina State, uh, David Suchoff and Maggie Short, who have uh, um, done some great work over the last few years. And really what they're illustrating is that as we delay planting data into the season, we reduce yields uh, per pound or per plant on a per plant basis for our full season or photo period dependent crops. Why is this important? Well, we have to think about how planting date might interact with say something like row spacing, where as we increase the amount of row spacing that we have, we're gonna increase the amount of pounds per plant uh, that we can produce. So thinking about how planting date and row spacing and all that is interacting, it's gonna be very important um, in your overall production system. And just a quick kind of to demonstrate this, uh, while a lot of the information was kind of arbitrary, um, and kind of anecdotal, uh, some work from NC State also showed that, you know, typically between four to five foot um, spacing per plant is typically going to produce the greatest net returns. Um, however, I like to always point out to growers to think about what works best for them. Um, in my experience, even, even using uh, upwards of six feet has been, uh, per, um, for row spacing, has been beneficial for me and our growers and our system to really allow us to work with the plant, get in, assess issues, uh, pollination, all that. So just very, some things to consider. Uh, also, this work was just released uh, last month, actually officially publicized via uh, NC State. Uh, illustrating the impacts of nitrogen on uh, CBD hemp. And what they found is that for an economic optimal rate of about 130 pounds of nitrogen was all that a high CBD hemp crop really needed uh, before it started uh, producing um, uh, a loss essentially in terms of biomass. So the economic optimal rate was around 130 pounds per acre. So yield was impacted. However, the data over their, uh, of their variety trials and of their other nitrogen rate trials also show 
um, that uh, nitrogen rate did not significantly impact the amount of cannabinoids that are being produced in the plant. So while we may increase yield via, via uh, fertility, it's not necessarily having an impact on overall cannabinoid development uh, in a very me measurable type way. More research is needed on this, of course, but this is the first real good indicator of this on hemp in the U.S. Uh, that I'm aware of. So what am I trying to say here? We need to consider how planting date, how row spacing, planting populations, fertility, and importantly, photo period of a specific variety um, are going to be interacting with one another, right? Now, Phil, a couple of slides back, you need to go back to it, but a couple of slides back, it looked like there was a difference between, yeah, this one here. So you have white mulch and black mulch here is where you also had the difference and show some things. Uh, yes, you know, I don't want to uh, uh, go into into that too much because it wasn't necessarily my study, but you do see an impact uh, perhaps on uh, plastic mulch. This can be due to weed suppression, um, uh, solarization of the soil. Uh, so there's a lot of other factors that I, I really didn't want to touch too much on. That's I think the biggest thing, um, uh, I just didn't want to be, you know, ignorant okay. about it, but uh, I'd say the biggest impact there is how row spacing is going to impact, impact plant development. Okay. It's a great question, though. Appreciate it, Blaine. Uh, if anybody has any questions too, while they're watching this, send them in on the chat to us and we'll get them on here. We may go a little longer than seven o'clock tonight, it looks like. So but I'm going to try to cruise through here. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, so so for, uh, for compliance testing, really, too, um, you know, we're aware of this. We have USDA guidelines, which are illustrated here, showing to take samples from the top one third portion of the plant. Uh, but some preliminary work done from the Institute for Advanced Learning and Research, which, which was cited in the USDA Farm Bill, demonstrates that it's uh, the, the cannabinoids, especially for THC, are concentrated higher in the top portions of the plant, that apical meristem, and decrease in concentration as you work down the plant. Why is this important? If you're going to be doing sampling, um, it's, it will behoove you to follow the guidelines because that is the guidelines that the sampling agents are going to follow, and it will ultimately impact the results that you get where you're sampling from on the plant. So make sure you're following the USDA guidelines for that. Hey, Phil, I'll say one quick thing about that, too. Um, I think you can look at that in terms of remediation strategies as well, right? So um, the far left there, top one third, is what you might uh, test in the field for compliance uh, sampling and analysis. But um, a remediation strategy of a blended biomass product is uh, coming up about, you know, half, right? And I saw some data at the Science of Hemp conference from another researcher that had actually looked at the, that aggregated biomass, and they were showing reductions of about a third to a half in THC concentration in that aggregated biomass. That's a great point, James. Absolutely. So, you know, the samples are going to be, can be a little misleading in, in what you have, and especially in terms of options of, of trying to remediate that or finding ways to use additional biomass to get those concentrations where they need to be. Absolutely. Um, so I want to move into an uh, overview of the data from the database. So uh, this is what um, the, the data as a whole looks like here, just without using any of the data filters. And really what I want to point out here mm. is how many variety entries we have for distinct varieties. So for example, cherry wine, there's 84 sample submissions. Mm. Silver lining, for example, has 50. So we have a lot of data that's been pulled in here over the last few years. So if you're looking to make variety selections, this would be a great place to look for cannabinoid development, CB to THC ratios, max and mins, things like that. It's all available there. But what I really wanted to say here is that we had over 159 distinct varieties being represented. And 
almost 1400 samples submitted. And I think by the time I actually get through all the data in the next week or so here, we will exceed 1400 samples. But for now, 1381, mm -hmm. uh, what we found is that over the course of two years, um, you know, 68% of the samples are being submitted through a September through October period of September 8th, to October 1st, which is when growers are trying to maximize profitability, which is when flowering is really occurring at, uh, at the most important rate for a grower. But this can mean that laboratories may be reaching, you know, capacity during these periods. So again, if we think about flowering really happening starting in late August, early, early September, we start to see samples intake at uh, increase dramatically, and that's going to be a concern. Uh, so having a good relationship with the laboratory, knowing where and how samples need to be delivered is very important. Um, also, what I'd like to show over the over two years, um, we had 402, so 29% of our test samples tested above the regulatory threshold for THC. And I remember, James, looking at your presentation, you had a 31% fail rate, so pretty close to what we're seeing over two years in the hemp database. Um, and importantly, I'd like to show what, what has happened here. Previously, the negligence threshold was 0.5% THC. That was increased in the Farm Bill last October uh, to 1%. But you can look here and you can see how many more samples would have failed that negligence threshold previously uh, if it had not been raised to 1%. So pretty important here. So there's a lot of wiggle room uh, in between 0.5% and 1% um, in terms of how much CBD can be produced, but it also really gives growers um, uh, a bit of a, of a blanket here in terms of negligence. But look at this clear cut relationship. We like to look at relationships um, as educators and uh, you can see there's a clear linear relationship between THC and CBD or vice versa. And really what is happening is that on, as a whole, most of our varieties cannot exceed 0.3% um, or are going to exceed 0.3% uh, THC, and they're going to do so at about 8% CBD, 8 to 9% CBD, um, which comes into, again, it's this relationship, right? And it's a relationship between CBD to THC of about 26 to 1, which is what you end up seeing um, promoted as uh, kind of a metric for success is CBD to THC. And I'm going to talk more about why that's very important here and how it may be useful to you, but just something to keep in mind over two years of data, a very clear relationship. Um, this is uh, seconded from some work shared by Doris Hamilton uh, from Kentucky, um, who runs the hemp program. You can just see that, you know, over uh, in 2019, 43% of their samples tested above 0.3% THC. So it's a problem everywhere. So for our CBD dominant cultivars, they're exhibiting this nice curve linear or uh, linear relationship. And typically total CBD, again, is not able to exceed 8% without exceeding 0.3% THC. Uh, this CBD to THC ratio of about 20 to 30 to one or 25 to one um, will help maintain profitability for growers looking to utilize this value. Um, and it's important to know that all varieties are not uh, created equal and must be compared separately. Uh, we put a, a report of high potential varieties out last year, and we're going to do that again this year. Um, but uh, this is just some information I wanted to share. So again, this is just demonstrating that clear relationship between CBD and THC and that for, for the most part, we're looking at between 25, about 25 to one uh, as a good CBD to THC ratio or north of that, even 30 to one uh, to maximize profitability while maintaining compliance late in the season. 
So work done from Cornell University supports this um, as a whole. So I always like to back up what we're doing with our large scale data collection, which with what's being done by other university research trials to just strengthen what we're trying to do here. Um, and so Cornell showed that most of the varieties in their trials tested between 20 to one and 30 to one. And interestingly enough, uh, didn't really see uh, impacts of CBD to THC ratios, not production of these cannabinoids, but their ratios, uh, not a difference um, by site. So environment, location, stable genetics were typically going to produce um, the same or similar CBD to THC ratios across environments. The amount of those cannabinoids can change depending on production practices and the environment, but the ratios are fairly stable. So why is that important? Because it means that all the samples collected um, throughout the, the database can be kind of aggregated together and we can feel confident that we're making educated decisions. So when looking at varieties entered into the database, we look at the record count, their CBD to THC average, but also we can look at this ratio here, which gives us an idea. And again, we're looking between 25 and 30 to one. It's kind of that targeted area, but we've had some entries that have even, even exceeded that, which is pretty impressive. Yeah. Um, impact on final rules. Um, James talks about the collaboration. This is a, a truly collaborative effort. Um, we're so proud of the work that we've been able to do together over the last couple of years. And importantly, uh, data from the database was used uh, to impact uh, the USDA final ruling last year because we were able to submit data as it was coming in from our growers to write a report which impacted THC testing windows, the negligence threshold, harvest windows, and exemptions for research. So it's pretty important stuff that we're trying to do, and we're going to hope to continue to use this information to impact policy moving forward where applicable. Um, so just a quick thing, I wanted to note that, you know, here in Illinois, we kind of found our own rules. We, we are um, technically um, in kind of a status of limbo. And if you are an Illinois grower, uh, for at least the time being, if you need to get an Illinois license, you'll have to go through the USDA while the current hemp uh, rules are being approved uh, in the review process for approval. So just keep that in mind. All right. So last thing I'm going to talk about is the cultivar check program, which was kind of the child of the hemp database. Um, we wrote a grant and we received SARE funding from the Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education uh, to do par the partnership grant. We took uh, several of the best cultivars or varieties from the 2020 growing season um, based on select criteria that we liked and that we could agree upon um, as a collective unit, as a research collective. Um, and then we reached out to the seed companies to provide us with these genetics for us to send to growers free of charge that we could test um, via the SARE funding. So you'll note that I've had to block out one here due to uh, material transfer agreements. I'm not sure if I can share their data quite yet, but these other ones I can talk about freely. Um, so pretty important to note, uh, we had the varieties. This is the number of locations that they were tested in and the number of sample submissions for each variety in total. So a, a very large amount of samples we were able to collect across um, uh, this data set. And it's important to note that for at each location for each variety, we tested three times, three weeks, five weeks, and seven weeks after flowering. And this coincided with university station trials that we were conducting. Uh, importantly, samples were analyzed twice by two partnering labs. Um, and then the data on agronomic performance was collected as well. And our goals are really just to create a list of recommended varieties for the region. Hmm. So here in all these blue sites are where we sent the seeds to. Um, it was a, we, we tried to essentially randomize so the varieties were well represented across the regions. And this is what we came up with. 
Um, so what we had is at each location, the data was, um, or for at each location, samples were submitted at three, five, and seven weeks after flowering. Uh, and what we saw across our trials as well was that um, across the aggregate, that across flowering periods as well, that the CBD THC ratios were not impacted. So what we saw in our trial was that, you know, across flowering periods, um, the CBD to THC ratio was not significantly impacted. And this again supports the research being done by Cornell looking at differences in environmental conditions that have no significant difference in CBD to THC. And again, by site. So what we did is we had the samples be sent to one lab and then they were sent to another. And due to proficiency testing among the labs, we felt that we could take um, the average across both lab samples because we really wanted to, in the spirit of the hemp database, combine as much information as possible. And we were able to come up with basically this, all right? So we have a variety. We have its expected flowering in the Midwest using the data from our growers. Um, and then we have the number of, <clears throat> excuse me, the timing when the sample was taken the number of samples at that time point, and then the total average for those values for CBD, CBG, and THC, as well as the average CBD to THC ratios for those varieties across all time points. So what did we find here? We have a combo chart and in our blue or in the histograms here is the CBD represented on the left and on the right represented by these lines here is our THC. So for example, this green here is the Suver Hayes variety for CBD at three time points. And this green line represents the THC at those three time points. And what did we find? We found that likely most of the varieties that we put into our trial, we're gonna exceed that regulatory threshold of 0.3% THC by week seven, if not before then in weeks between weeks five and seven at some point in here really. Um, so this is suggesting that even going five, six, seven weeks is, is starting to push it for a lot of these varieties and they need to be tested early and often to ensure compliance. That's after flowering? After flowering initiation, after flowering. correct. Okay. Oh yeah, so it's right there, okay, thank you. <laughs> um, so this very important, we, we were, we were uh, it was pretty exciting to see the results of this. Um, so again, you can look at how each of these varieties are performing from CBD um, and THC uh, standpoints but think about too, is maybe if it's a producer like Suver Hayes, which racks up CBD and THC very quickly, that you may be able to harvest it earlier, at an earlier time before it reaches that level when conditions may be more conducive for you. So thinking about production practices, thinking about variety performance, compliance testing, how they all kind of form together into this whole picture of, of what it means to be a hemp grower. A conversation today too about disease. Um, the longer that plants in the field, way more risk for disease uh, infection and development. So that's, that's really useful. Absolutely, James. And I'm glad you said that because I wanted to look across the cultivar check program and see what was happening to these THC ratios over time. And you and I have discussed this before too, that maybe even seven weeks is too late where we have degradation or dilution of these compounds over time. And that maybe even earlier on to maximize the effectiveness of the plant, we're looking at an earlier harvest in that week five, week six, potentially, maybe even earlier, depending on the variety. But what I thought was very interesting was across many of the varieties as a whole, even into week seven, we started to see a breakdown in this uh, production. So um, this data was also supported by work done by our University of Illinois replicated trial and due to NDAs, cannot share the names of some of these varieties yet. 
But what you're really seeing here is that the CBD to THC ratios are staying in this 20 to 30 range throughout flowering for all of our CBD dominant varieties or pretty close. This one's a little short, but it's staying in that range. And again, it's throughout flowering and throughout environments. So it's really about stability of the genetics. And then one of the things that I've really found interesting is looking at our CBG dominant cultivars. And I'm going to be wrapping up here in just a moment. Um, what I found very interesting was that not for a single sample across any of the locations or any of the time points that any of our CBG dominant varieties exceed the regulatory threshold for THC. Um, this agreed with the work that we saw from the Midwestern Hemp Database last year, um, and that may be uh, an opportunity for growers to minimize issues with compliances by growing a variety that does not produce it in, the, in those high uh, amounts. So we can see that both these varieties produced, you know, 9% or north of 9% for CBG, but none of them um, exceeded the amount of uh, THC for compliant varieties. Pretty interesting stuff. Yeah, that's good. Um, so universities out there who are trying to do research and have to convince people to do this work and not have to go with compliant uh, hemp that's going to be non-compliant, I've been pushing them towards CBG dominant varieties because it minimizes the risk a little bit if you're looking to do some, some easy research type production. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, last thing I want to talk about real quick is just day neutral and photoperiod dependent differences uh, in plant growth. Um, differences in the seeding rate, but I wanted to use some information from James's trials that he published last year um, that's available currently online to just demonstrate to you that strip biomass for photoperiod dependent uh, versus day neutral uh, type varieties is going to be tremendously different and um, how that factors into your production system. Um, seeding rates are going to be uh, much different and just when you're harvesting, uh, but also keep in mind the hemp database is useful for cannabinoid development, but when you're looking at variety performance for a region, look to your university station trials. For yield, look to them to, to get a more accurate representation of what's going to happen in your field. So we can look at performance and yield metrics with our variety trials and then use the hemp database for cannabinoid development, merge the two together and come up with an educated guess on what the best varieties are going to be for you. Um, Again, this is work that James has illustrated. This is work from Shelby Ellison from UW-Madison, also published and available online, showing differences in flowering initiation uh, and flowering um, across uh, a particular variety. So again, we're combining yield, we're combining flowering dates and flowering ranges, um, looking for varieties that have tighter flowering windows to minimize issues with compliance potentially and harvest down the line combining all this data from all of the work that we're doing together to try to make a good, good guess on which you're going to grow. So um, I really want to point out that this is, um, we have our, our grain fiber trials from the University of Illinois, and those are available here. Um, we have two years of data, 2020 and 2021, uh, and we had 30 varieties in our grain fiber trial this last year. And we also have a great YouTube video available uh, showing the whole trial from start to finish, um, and that is also available here. You can use either the QR codes or just use the links below, and that'll get you there. Um, and the last thing I'm going to say is this has truly been... Um, uh, a collaborative effort between all of us um, from uh, the Midwestern Hemp Database and the Midwestern Hemp Collaborative to our growers, to our private sponsors for SARE for funding this project. Um, and I get a kick out of it when I think that James and I still haven't met and that we started this thing over Zoom when the pandemic started and our group of collaborators has still been meeting 
uh, regularly. And this is just how we're doing things now. So uh, hopefully one day I'll get to shake your hand, James. But for the time being, it's been great to work with you on these projects. And I look forward to continuing and doing that. So uh, with that, I will take any questions uh, that you have. Well, Phil, we'll make that happen in May. How does that sound? That looks great. You come yeah. to the expo and that will happen. So. I'll Dave, be there. Dave, have we got any questions that have come in online? No, but I can, uh, if anyone, any of our, we have some attendees on Zoom. So uh, if anyone wants to raise their hand, they can, uh, or Alice, so we have Dennis, Alice, Dennisine, Marlon, um, we can promote them, bring them in. But I wanted to ask, how can we help you um, with this? Uh, we need growers. We're going to need some more growers this year for our trials who want to participate um, on either the discounted testing or uh, growing some cultivars for us. We send you the varieties, we pay for the shipping, we pay for the testing. All you have to do is uh, just follow uh, the rules for compliance. And if they get too hot, they got to be destroyed. But it's a little science experiment um, that you get to do. And, and in some cases, what our, what our growers are even trying to do is ones that they grew for us this year that they liked a lot. They're going to grow again for production this year. Um, because they had that experience with it. They feel confident with it and they know what it's going to do. So we need growers. We want people who are looking to participate um, and it's super easy to do. We just got to make sure you're a licensed grower with some experience, have a conversation with us and we get you set up. So what's the smallest plot that would fit, you know, in your, to, to participate in your study? Uh, that, I mean, that most of that's going to come down to, um, the requirement by the state, tribe, or uh, the federal government, basically depending on what you are, um, uh, you have to do. So, for example, last year in Wisconsin, they needed a set number of plants per variety. Um, so we we basically send you uh, 25 to 30 seeds of that variety, hoping that we get at least 15 plants per variety um, that we can we can take data from, sample from. Um, so we don't want this to be a burden. Uh, growers can, can take more, but we, we keep it smaller and controlled so we can be a little bit more accurate with how we're collecting that data. Is there a way, uh, so right now, the state of Michigan, it costs $1,350 to have a grower license. So if someone wanted to grow, you know, a, a maybe 25, 30 plants just for a trial, that's a pretty big burden to take on. Is there a way to get a, any kind of research license or get a license under another organization so at least you know from my experience uh not not quite yet really um you know for, it's really that even here in the state um at this point now for us growers in illinois we have to get a um a a production license to do research uh currently because of how our regulations stand so it comes down to each state and how they do things and if they're following federal guidance but for the most part i would say pretty much pretty much no you are going to have to be a um this will be for growers who are already looking to grow themselves and this is just be a supplemental thing to do yeah well, it's, it's unfortunate we're, we, we, we've had discussions about the importance of research and i know that that's those are things that are being um discussed and hopefully addressed um, by projects like this, by getting people to be uh, involved with it, growers to be a part of it, and to show that how we can do this work, hopefully we'll, we'll have some, uh, some say in that moving forward. The, the economic incentive we do offer is a reduced uh, 
price for analysis. You still have to go through your state or tribe, et cetera, for compliance testing. But if you're doing, uh, you know, other pre-harvest sampling to time harvest, things like that, um, we can help you achieve that at a lower cost uh, by participating in the database. So that's kind of the carrot that we offer aside from the data itself. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that, James. I didn't mention that the discounted cannabinoid testing came in at $35. All of our partnering labs agreed to that rate, which is half, if not more than half of some of other places that are charging for that. Um, yeah. And Rachel Berry says hi to you guys. <laughs> hey, Rachel. She reached out on Facebook. So, man, this is great. This is, you know, Blaine and I have talked over and over since we met in 2018 that we're going to be smarter next year. And this is the kind of stuff that it takes to get there, right? We need okay. to work this. Wow. You know, one thing, I, I mean, I'm just making a general observation here about all the data because there's a lot of data to absorb. Yeah, to come through it. And, and I think we're going to need to repeat this show at some point with you guys, probably before the expo. But it looked like if we could go to this 0.1%, right, instead of the 0.3, looks like 1%. most... 1%, excuse me, thank you, um, that it would eliminate most of this problem with people having to worry about things going hot, uh, you know, and, and having to destroy the crop. I mean, it just, your data, it, it shows it. It's just amazing. Absolutely amazing. Wow. I'd take 0.5%, to be honest uh, with you, Blaine. I mean, just the, the jump, you're literally able to jump, double your CBD production by almost increasing it from 0.3 to 0.5. Uh, your CBD production would increase dramatically. And then, yeah, you'd have reduced risk because most of those varieties would be out of the field before they reach that level. Um, so yeah, 1% would be a, would be a dream, but I'd take 0.5 gladly. Yeah, I mean, Cause you're always dealing with that ratio, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. Wow. I mean, and I'll just say here, what did, uh, what, what did we pull for that for 0.5? What did I say? 7% of uh, the tests that came through, you know, um, uh, 6.5%. So only 7%. Uh, exceeded 0.5% THC, you know, 93% pass rate is pretty good. So um, yeah. And wow. we're going to, we're going to keep doing this. You know, we've had discussions with them and the USDA to send this stuff off. They know where to find it. And we're just hoping that we can keep this relationship going of grower submitted data research coming in and science informing policy. It's all we can really hope for. As far oh, as uh, sponsoring what you guys doing are you offering some type of sponsoring opportunities you know to, do you guys need money i mean we take it i just want to put it out there since you know we have an audience perhaps so yeah um, you know. it, all seriousness absolutely i mean and, and i i see the biggest opportunities there is, is again partnering with growers i mean um, and doing it that way. That's the way I like doing it for this project, pay, uh, supplemental testing. I mean, the SARE funding itself, for example, it, it covered some of the testing we did for our university trial, just for some random grower submissions. We said, hey, can we get some extra samples submitted? We have data we'd like to provide, but we would like to do some additional testing through the project. You know, some of our partners, you know, we're trying to help growers out as best we can. And that's really where I see the funding uh, availability being able to go. So sponsoring a grower who wants to do a trial or sponsoring a site or a location, let us know. We're definitely interested in stuff like that. Excellent. So we did have one thing that came in the chat here. It said, uh, if you bump the percentage, in percentage, then wouldn't seed companies also just push the limits again? So I'll, yeah. I'll respond to that, Blaine. I, I think, um, 
just personal opinion here, um, it would be much more rational to regulate consumer products than regulate the plant in the field um, prior to harvest. So um, I, I agree. I mean, I think when you, it, to me, the basic premise of the way that the regulation has been designed, sampling the crop pre-harvest in the field is is problematic to begin with. And so, yeah, I think, you know, we, we, there's there's a lot that we could do to make life easier for, for hemp producers. Um, and, and I think that regulating the consumer product would be the best one. I mean, that's how we treat other other crops, right? When when I grow wheat, if it has uh, mycotoxins that can make people sick, um, you know, the, the the government isn't coming out and and uh, sampling that that crop in my field. It, I take it to the elevator after harvest. They test it there. If it has high levels of mycotoxins, they pay me a little bit less for it, and then they blend it with clean grain to achieve the regulatory standard for mycotoxins in in wheat or whatever that grain is. You know that that is the the strategy that we use in most other agricultural products. And to me, you know, regulating the processing and the consumer product going out the door would be the rational approach. But that's yeah, I'll get off and, my soapbox. Once that's we just... process it and put it into an oil or distillate, you're out of regulation already. Yes. You know, you're sunk, you know, yep. in reality, you know, as soon as you process it. So you're gonna there's no way you're gonna condense everything and be under 0.3% THC. So yeah, it's that final product. So that's where that that whole thinking has to change. Well, guys, this has been really uh, just a great show. And man, just so much information to uh, try to absorb. We look forward to uh, being able to see this stuff online. Uh, and thank you again for all the hard work you guys are doing. Uh, because, yeah, this is, uh, this is what we need. We need this information out there. And we really appreciate it. And um, yeah, I can see right now that your sessions in may are going to have to be more than an hour to be able to get all the information out so we're going to stretch you guys out a little bit there when we get to that point for doing that so um yeah so everybody uh remember in may you can come meet these guys in person and be able to get a lot of information there for two and we'll have it there uh and now you can start using some of this stuff for your decisions as you go forward for this year so uh you know utilize it that's what it's there for that's what they're doing all the hard work for so. You know, I'm just thinking uh, all these studies, maybe we should uh, link to them from the yeah. iHemp website yes, sir. so that people can easily find them. What do you think? Yeah, I'll yeah. put it in the show notes and, uh, you know, we can certainly, uh, you know, create, I'll create a post and, you know, on the homepage, you'll find it with links to it. So uh, anything for the, uh, before we close up here, I got the recipe and uh, I can do that real quick, but anything else you want to touch on before we get into that? last comments thank you for the opportunity to share the work it's always it's always great to do that it's awesome yeah awesome. absolutely ihemp has always been a, a leader in our state and uh, a excellent collaborator as a researcher you know my head is is in the dirt uh most days you know we're we're focused on the work in the field um, we need folks like ihemp that are telling the story that are supporting the industry and, and getting the word out about our research so thank you all for having us yeah, we're glad to do it and now let's talk about food. Yeah, we can talk about food. Before we do that, a couple of things. I want to do one, two quick things. One is next week's show. Uh, we're going to be doing uh, with Heartland Industries. Um, Heartland Industries is moving ahead tremendously in the state here. Uh, right now, they are planting between 3,500 and 5,000 acres of fiber that they're doing this next year, kind of down in the southwest part of the state. But what they do there will now allow us and will move forward the hemp industry for everybody uh, with the fiber. Um, so we're really excited to have them on next week. 
and they can talk about their project and where that's going. They got a little grant money to do some research as well. So we're really looking forward to that. So um, we told everybody, you know, everybody's from the beginning has said the grain and fiber is where it's going to move to eventually. And, uh, and we're in a big way that's going to happen this year in the state of Michigan. So we're, we're excited to have them on next week. Also, can I throw in a quick plug, Blaine, for my sure, show absolutely. next week? Sure. Yeah. Uh, we're going to have Andrew Brisbane on for the full hour. Andrew Brisbane, of course, is the executive director of the Michigan Marijuana Regulatory Agency. He's going to be using my show at Wednesday at 4 o'clock on Facebook. Excuse me, 1 o'clock on Facebook. Got too many fours in my head. Uh, to disclose what the 2021 adult use and uh, medical total sales are for 2021. It's going to be somewhere in the vicinity of $2 billion, give or take. We just well, don't know the final number yet. So, well, uh, But he's going to share that sure with that, my audience next week. So, Well, we might want to make sure, Dave, that we uh, put a little plug in for that earlier in the week so everybody can look in on his show for sure. So absolutely. Thanks, Mike. For You're welcome. You're doing a lot of great work on that side. We know you are. So, Thank you. Uh, and then I want to talk once again about the expo. It's going to be in May uh, 21st, 22nd uh, in Lansing. Going to be a great time. Uh, a lot of great information is going to be shared there. Uh, don't miss this, uh, this opportunity when we have that. Friday night will be the big party night. Um, so we're looking forward to that for sure. So with all that being said, we are going to talk about food, a wonderful food recipe here. Since it is winter, now on my side of the state, we've been having winter warnings, winter watchings, and there's a lot of snow here. So uh, great time to talk about this. this is a winter squash with hemp nut filling is what this is. Hey, Blaine. Uh, yeah. This is what I needed to get with you with. This is from uh, Hemp Fabric. I have to get it and you know, I have to put the hemper on it yet for you. Okay. Uh, Wanted to let you know you have a new. Oh, hat thank you. Coming. I actually have my. I actually was smart enough to bring the hat with me, but it's out in the car. <laughs> not to here today, so. Well, you need your emperor hat. Come on. Yeah, I do, but at least we got a recipe today. So. Yeah, so, there we go. When yeah. is it? The winter squash with hemp nut filling. Yeah. There yeah. It is extra. It is a wonderful, wonderful thing. So, uh, extra virgin olive oil, uh, one small yellow onion, uh, two cloves of fresh garlic, uh, Granny Smith apple peeled, cooked, and diced, a stalk of celery, zest of lemon, golden raisins, uh, half a cup of shelled hemp seeds, uh, one tablespoon of hemp seed oil, uh, two to three sprigs freshly parsley minced, and a winter, two winter squash half and seeded. Good choice are acorn, butternut, or I can't even say the one. Uh, okie I'm going to call it okie dokie. Oh, how, how do you say it? Pumpkin. Okay, well, pumpkin, <laughs> all right. Works for me, too. I know, and okie-dokie pumpkin, how's that sound? Oh, yeah. Uh, it's pretty simple. Uh, you bring it down to 350, you put a small amount of olive oil in the skillet, and I normally I always say to replace that with the hemp, but not on this one, because they're saying, you know, with the skillet, uh, hemp oil has a lower flash point, so I would I would stick with the olive oil on this one, folks, where they're talking about it in here. Uh, of course, there's another place where the hemp oil goes, but in, in the skillet, use the olive oil. Uh, you add the onion, the garlic, and spread over medium heat. Uh, bring it to a sizzle, add a pinch of salt. Um, you stir in the apples, the celery, the lemon zest, and season lightly with salt. You saute it for two to three minutes. Remove from the heat and stir in the raisins, hemp seed, hemp seed oil, and parsley. And you arrange the squash in a baking dish and you spoon in the mixture. You even into the cavities and the squash and pour about a half inch of water in the, in the dish. Um, to keep that all nice and moist while you're cooking it, cover tightly with foil and bake for 40 minutes. Uh, and then away we go. So 
Uh, enjoy the scrumptious, sweet winter squash baked to perfection and deliciously balanced with the rich, nutty flavor of hemp seed. I can't think of a more wonderful, special occasion side dish. And we always want to give credit where credit is due. This is out of the Hemp Nut Cookbook. It's Richard Ross, Rose, and Bridget Morris is where you got that from. So Excellent. All right. So Very thanks, good. everybody. I know we went a little long tonight, but whoa, what a lot of information. All right. Thanks so much, James. Thanks, Philip. Thanks, guys. You Always good care, to see everybody. you, Mike. All right, you too. Thanks, see everyone. you next week. All right, see you next week. And don't forget to turn into Mike's show on Wednesday at 1. Yep, 1 o'clock. 1 o'clock. We'll be live. Andrew Brisbow. Actually, I'm encouraging people to send in questions in advance. Uh, Mike at MIMarijuanareport.com. And we'll fire them off at Andrew. We got them for the whole hour. Uh, right. And... Uh, see what he comes up with that should be fun all right thanks everybody thanks thank you for listening to the ihemp michigan podcast have a question comment or suggestion email dave at ihempmichigan.com